Donald Trump says it's time to move on. The election is over, and the hacking news should be too, he says. But Washington isn't moving on just yet. With only a few days left in President Obama's term, the intelligence community issued a major report placing the blame squarely on Russian President Vladimir Putin. They say he launched an unprecedented hacking campaign on democratic political organizations to influence the American election to help Trump. To strike back against the alleged meddling, Obama has issued sanctions, expelled Russian diplomats, and hinted that covert retaliation could still be coming. And Capitol Hill is abuzz with talks of more hearings and new legislation. To talk about those plans, we have with us the co-chairman of the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus, Congressman Jim Langevin. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Podcast, where we go beyond the headlines to interview some of the key leaders and thinkers in the field. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor section on security and privacy in the digital age. Before we talk with Congressman Langevin, Peter and I will chat about some of the more interesting things that we've been seeing and learning in DC and on our travels around the country. So Peter, what do you, what's been on your mind? <laughs> what's on my mind is I yeah. think uh, what's on a lot of people's minds and it's relevant to the topic of the podcast today. It's not just the question of what happened in the um, campaign designed to influence the election, which importantly was not just that. We've seen the Russian activities hitting everything from the Pentagon to American universities and think tanks, given where we're recording right now. <laughs> but um, what I'm wrestling with is a small project trying to figure out what do we do about it? And most importantly, what do we do about it in a space where you have a commander in chief that doesn't want to fight the conflict that you need to win. So we're trying to wrestle with um, what are not just politically doable responses to the Russian activity, but ones that are in a sense kind of workarounds. Do you really think that he doesn't want to take on this fight or do you think that might change after he takes office in a few days? There's the facts. Be a mind we, reader. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's the facts that we have at hand, and at least so far, um, in terms of this public statements that he's made, most especially via Twitter, he's taken a very different position toward this. And, you know, first it was a thing saying, like, for example, there wasn't uh, the hack. Um, then it was, well, it could be anyone. Um, it could be, you know, the infamous 400 pound mm. hacker. And then at one point, he's busy, it, they, they were in, in New Jersey. Um, to now it's, well, lots of actors have hacked. Let's move on. Look, the the point is we have a commander in chief uh, coming in who takes a very different attitude towards both these breaches, but also Russia in general. And um, in turn, we've got a GOP Congress, which has um, attacked the Obama administration for being weak and belated in its um, sanctions against Russia. So we've got kind of a put up or shut up period. It's a put up or shut up for the um, executive branch, but it's also for Congress. If you're going to criticize the um, sanctions as being weak, all right, strengthen them. And then there's more important, again, let's move beyond it and try and think about this within broader deterrent strategy and trying to hit uh, points of influence, but also the need to build up resilience, the need to better defend American systems so that both Russia in the future and other actors are not incentivized to keep hitting us because of the ease of it and the um, uh, sort of very... Uh, amenable cost benefit when it comes to the cost of conducting these attacks versus the likely benefits. Maybe to put it more directly, because of how easy this was, how cheap it was, 
not just Russia, but other actors are going to look at this and say, I can do this too. And that's quite scary. And so if you have a president who isn't willing to take on this battle and you have Congress who wants a stronger response, where does that leave the U.S.? Is it possible to take action if the person at the top doesn't want to? That's where I think, um, you know, it's going to fall on Congress. One, when we're talking about the sanctions in terms of retaliation, but more broadly, when you think about cybersecurity, there were a number of things were somewhat quietly done, although listeners of this podcast would know um, towards the end of the administration. Uh, so one was after the OPM breach, the um, Obama administration identified a series of kind of best practices, mostly from the private sector that could be brought over into government. The second thing they did is they created a bipartisan commission of experts that came up with its own recommendations on things that could be done to better American cybersecurity. So if you pull back and think about this, best practices from private industry and bipartisan recommendations, those are things that actually the GOP Congress could get behind. Mm -hmm. It could actually sort of try and own and say, you know, these are things that fit within our worldview. We want a better cybersecurity. So let's take them over and bring them forward. Those would be incredibly important steps that could be taken and importantly, would better defend the United States, not just against a Russia in the future, but any type of attacker in the future. So let's, you know, I've, I've had my hobby horse things to get off, you know, my chest since uh, the last we talked before the holidays. How about you? What are some of the projects that you're working on right now? Yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about how this concern about fake news and political hacking um, is spreading all over the world. And there was a recent piece in Passcode by our Berlin contributor, Rachel Stern, and she wrote about Germany's plan to fight fake news. And it's interesting because you're hearing from a growing number of German politicians who are increasingly concerned that Russia will also try to interfere in their own elections this coming fall and that their goal- We've already seen a hack of Bundestag that um, sources link back to Russia. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And if the goal is to discredit, you know, pro-European Chancellor Angela Merkel and to strengthen support for the Populist Party, you know, you'll start to see this interesting trend spread across various countries. So they're taking steps right now. The German Interior Ministry is proposing to create a center of defense against misinformation. And so the goal of that would be to help to hunt down and do away with fake news online. And it's instructing political parties to disable bots and other technology that might be tricked into spreading news or other internet content that's misleading. And one German official even wants uh, to fine Facebook some half a million dollars to for failing to delete fake news stories within 24 hours. So, I mean, that's how they're responding to this right now ahead of their elections. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see what what happens in the coming months in the lead up to that election. I'm interested in your um, thoughts about the role of media and the responsibility of media in this. So in terms of um, when we think about, you know, fake news, uh, propaganda and hacking, when they all come together, one of the key influence channels has not just been bots, it's been traditional media. And we had, for example, the public uh, editor of the New York Times after the fact say, you know, look, we were somewhat of a um, uh, partner to Russian intelligence in terms of reporting, not just merely the hack, but the fruits of the theft. And I'm intrigued by, you know, how, how do you see your colleagues uh, talking about this? You know, you can make a comparison between the Ashley Madison hack where people reported the hack, but they didn't report it who was cheating on their spouse mm -hmm. versus the Sony 
and the DNC hack where reporters reported the hack, but they also reported on what was stolen. How are, how are you yeah. and your colleagues wrestling with this sort of new power and new responsibility? Well, this is something that is sparking discussions in newsrooms all over and on Twitter. I, you know, you see opinions all over the board on this. And I think there it's important to distinguish between two different things. When you talk about, you know, fake news, there's obviously, you know, news that is pushed out by not actual news outlets that's out there that could be, you know, what people just see and believe is real. And then there's talking about reporting of stolen information. And so I think those are two different things, but those are going to be definitely difficult challenges for news in the coming years. Because on the first one, you want to make sure the counter to fake news is accurate news. In order for people to be getting accurate news, you need them to be subscribing, you know, or reading it and not just reading what they want to hear, what reaffirms their pre-existing biases that when they log onto Facebook, that they're not just in a spiral of getting, you know, the same information, whether it's real or not, just because it agrees with their their political beliefs. So that's a real challenge that I, you know, I think that the social media companies are also going to have to, to deal with as well. Um, on the second one, I think that is a a serious issue because to think about because you know it is stolen information but it's also public information now and if there I think there is in some news organizations the sense of competition well if I'm not reporting on this and other people are and it should we look into it responsibly or not but then also are they public officials or are they private people who might be in their own personal relationships does that make a difference I think these are all really important questions that are going to have to be answered. And I don't think there's a simple answer because if the New York Times doesn't publish on some of those things, but another organization does, it's still in the atmosphere. You can't, you can never really put that back in the box. So I don't really see this going away. And, you know, we're going to have to see. And you see even with politicians dealing with this, like in Germany, for instance, you know, it might even be too late to try to contain this because, as you mentioned, there was a hack into the Bundestag and it was designed to steal sensitive data. So, if they've already collected material, you know, there could be some release closer to the election. So, you know, I think there is the sense now that whether you're trying to strengthen cybersecurity, prevent hacking, you know, or whether you are releasing it but not talking about it, can you really put any of this back in the box? So now we're going to hear from someone on the congressional side who's working in the midst of this. We've got Representative Langevin, who's a Democrat from Rhode Island, who co-chairs the Congressional Cybersecurity Committee. He's also a member of the House Armed Services Committee and the Homeland Security Committee. Thanks so much for joining us. And so what did you make of the conclusions from the intelligence agencies that Russia ordered the hacking campaign? Is there anything in there that surprised you? Well, the, the conclusions uh, were showing disturbing and uh, unsettling, and it should uh, outrage the American people. Uh, I'm certainly uh, outraged by the findings. And what is uh, unique uh, is the unanimity with which the intelligence community is, uh, community is speaking with one voice that uh, says so clearly that Russian hacking actually occurred, that uh, they were trying to influence U.S. elections. Uh, having been uh, serving now as a senior member of the House Armed Services Committee and the Homeland Security Committee and having served for eight years on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, I'm very familiar with how the intelligence community operates. And it's it's not often that you get such uh, a, a definitive conclusion using the term high confidence to say that 
they have reached these conclusions. In this case, that that Russia was involved in the uh, the hacking, that it, it came at the highest levels, that uh, Vladimir Putin was directly involved in in, in directing these these operations. Uh, they can use terms such as low confidence, medium confidence, and high confidence. When when the intelligence community speaks with one voice and they're saying we have a high confidence that X Y Z occurred, it's the type of uh, conclusion that. In my experience, you can take it to the bank that it did happen. Is there anything more you would have liked to have seen in the declassified version of the report? There's been some criticism back and forth within the cybersecurity community around that. Well, uh, certainly the, the, the more detailed the information to make the case, I, I would certainly like to see more of that information. Of course, given the fact that this they used all source intelligence to come to this conclusion, they will also have to be mindful of protecting sources and methods. and. Going forward, uh, I would expect and will hope that that we will have a 9-11 style commission uh, created uh, basically outside of government to do a, an all-source analysis of, of the facts involved in the Russian hacking. And I was also called on Speaker Ryan, and in fact, I'm introducing a resolution to create a select committee on cybersecurity to investigate uh, Russian hacking. So that the, the Congress is doing a total review and in-depth uh, analysis of uh, investigation into what actually uh, occurred. And I expect that there would be both a public version and a, uh, a classified version of a of report, both with the 9-11 style commission as well as the findings of a select committee. But the more information we can get out to the American people the better it is, the more important it is, because the American people understand, need to understand uh, how damaging and how uh, really unprecedented and, and dangerous uh, what Russia did actually, how it actually occurred. That speaks to the congressional side. What about the White House side? What about Donald Trump's response so far? What do you think the consequences are for not just this activity, but cybersecurity overall, if Trump continues to um, deflect questions about Russia's role? Well, the, the one thing that I hope that the president-elect uh, comes to understand uh, is that this was all source analysis that took place. They were using all sorts of uh, intelligence and information to come to these conclusions. And I, you know, I heard the president-elect's response when he said, "Well, you know, hacking it could be anyone." Well, this is not just looking at the ones and zeros because certainly attribution in cybersecurity is a difficult thing. However, this report, the, the intelligence uh, community's assessment, uses all source intelligence to come to this conclusion, and, and I, I hope that that was conveyed when uh, the president-elect was actually briefed in person by the heads of the intelligence community. Uh, but I, I've been, quite frankly, I've been disappointed in general by the response or lack of response by many of my Republican colleagues. Certainly, my Democratic colleagues have spoken with a strong and clear voice denouncing uh, what Russia has done. But the voice from many of my Republican colleagues, unfortunately, has been muted. Really, there's been no response. However, I will say on the Senate side, I have newfound respect for and give great credit to Senator McCain and Senator Lindsey Graham for speaking out so directly, forcefully, 
and uh, vociferously uh, in condemning the, uh, the the Russian hacking, embracing the, the findings of the intelligence community, and supporting the sanctions that have been put in place or the actions that the administration has taken place to punish Russia for what uh, they have done in this uh, trying to undermine U.S. elections. This goes to the heart of, of what we stand for as a democracy, free and open and fair elections. And clearly, Russia took steps to undermine and influence the elections. Again, according to the, the facts involved with the intelligence community's assessment, so uh, I, I want the administration, the new administration, and and uh, and all of my colleagues to uh, to get behind an effort to speak with one voice to condemning the outcome. We haven't heard that yet in many of the Republican from the Republicans, other than Senator McCain and Senator Graham. Yeah, there is some sentiment on the Republican side. Um, some tweets from the president-elect who that have mentioned the timing of this. That after the election, that Democrats are upset about the hacking and were more upset than they were, and that this is a political sour grapes kind of thing. I mean, do you see this as a partisan issue, or do you worry about it becoming one? And do you? What do you? You know, how do you see that playing out in the next Congress? I, I do not see this as a partisan issue, and I would be just as upset uh, if if it went the the other way. Uh, no matter what the uh, the outcome was, the intent was to undermine U.S. elections. It was attempts to influence the outcome and sway the election in favor of of one candidate. That should send shockwaves of concern and fear and, and outrage uh, all the American people because it was really an attack on our, our system of government, on democracy. And going forward, uh, if, if Russia isn't punished severely as a result uh, of, of what they, they did, uh, it'll just embolden them to do it again, whether it's to us or to other democracies around the world. And what do you make of the Obama administration's response so far? I mean, there have been sanctions and expelling Russian diplomats. Um, I mean, is that enough? And, and if not, what do you expect um, or what do you hope for from the next administration on this? I want uh, whatever actions are taken for it to send a, a clear and painful message to, to Russia that we will not sit back and tolerate you interfering with the U.S. elections, trying to undermine confidence in U.S. elections, trying to sway U.S. elections, and that there will be a heavy penalty, a heavy cost imposed upon you if you ever do it again. So I support the administration's actions so far. I believe that there can, there should be more Congress. I would like to see us take uh, actions as well on the sanctions side. And there will be other things that either uh, that either have been done or will be done uh, behind the scenes to further send messages to the Russians that there's a, there's a penalty, a cost, the price to be paid for. Uh, for the actions that they took in, in interfering with our elections. So one of the um, concepts within deterrence is, as you laid out, deterrence by retaliation, um, hitting back, punishing. So there's that type. But there's a second type of deterrence, which is deterrence by denial, building up resilience so that the attacker is um, less incentivized to attack you if they're not going to be successful, if they can't get the gains from it. And that's one of the elements that's you know been part of the cybersecurity discussion for a long time. Well, before these recent um, events, one of the moves besides uh, seeking to punish Russia, the, the administration did, was to designate U.S. electoral systems as critical infrastructure. Do you see this as a, as a good step 
what would you like to see next, not just in this electoral side, but in building resilience overall? Sure. Well, part of our response has to be also uh, building resilience into the system and doing everything we can to close off vulnerabilities wherever possible. As someone who has spent a better part of a decade now fighting for stronger cyber security protections and and uh, and hardening our critical infrastructure, uh, I know that this is a moving target. It's a work in progress. Uh, we will never be at a point where we can say we are 100% secure. It's just not possible, unfortunately. But what we can do is shrink down the aperture of vulnerability that in many ways one will view is very wide right now to something that is much more manageable. And so taking steps to build in uh, stronger cyber defenses and build in resilience uh, will be a critical part of our response, uh, certainly uh, internally and, and going forward. What about on um, the uh, idea of the election system itself being designated critical infrastructure? Yeah, I, I support uh, the secretary's designation of our election systems as being uh, critical infrastructure. What that says is that we will use uh, all assets of national power to protect uh, our, our critical infrastructure, our critical national assets, if you will. But we also have to remember that states and local governments have the, the vast amount of the responsibility to conduct elections and make sure that they are uh, conducted freely and fairly and uh, they're conducted in the, in, the, in the right way. So what this says by designating our election systems as critical infrastructure, it means that, that the states and local government have brought a reach back now uh, certainly to ask for help from the federal government if they run into problems, uh, that it is, it's a clear signal to state and local governments that they can rely on the federal government if they need assistance, but be mindful of the fact that elections are still run uh, by uh, the, the states and, and local governments. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because there's already been some pushback from state officials like Georgia's Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, for instance, who say that this is just, you know, federal overreach and maybe just another designation. How do you see that playing out? Do you see this as a potential source of tension between the federal government and the states? Well, I, I don't want it to be an overreach by the, the federal government. I would be certainly concerned about uh, that if I felt that that were the, the case. I don't see that as this. It's it's signaling to the states and to local governments that, that uh, we see this as a critical uh, national operation, if you will, a, a, a part of our, who we are and, and uh, what our country stands for, and that we want to do everything we stand ready to assist states and locals wherever possible. If you run into a situation where you need uh, extra resources uh, in protecting the integrity of the system, but it's just signaling that we are ready to help, the federal government is ready to help, but not to step into that interfering. I don't want the, the the perception to be in any way the federal government is now coming in and saying, you know, we're the federal government and we're here to help you in the sense that interferes in any way with what states and locals do. It's that the government is there as a resource for states and locals. So it's the other way around. I was going to ask it in the opposite direction, not whether it goes too far, but whether it goes far enough, because, you know, the um, impact of this was not on targeting voting machines. It was targeting the other parts of the ecosystem of democracy. It was targeting party organizations, individuals. Do you see a need for some kind of mechanism to help those organizations, to help better information sharing? I mean, it's interesting that, you know, banks are under siege from cyber attack and they information share. 
multiple elections, presidential campaigns, and political party organizations have been breached. This is not the first time it happened in 08, it happened in 12. Why do we not have information sharing, for example, between not just the DNC and FBI, but the RNC and the DNC? Is this the part of um, elections critical infrastructure we're still leaving open, even if we we solidify at the state level the mechanisms there? Yeah, and that's that's what we should work harder to uh, close a vulnerability on, which is it can be solved through information sharing. Uh, when we know of a uh, known vulnerability or bad actors, we should broadly share that information, and and perhaps by designating our election systems as a, a critical uh, national asset that it'll I- enhance that kind of information sharing that will help entities to better protect themselves. Let's pull back on this. Um, outside of just these recent events related to uh, Russia and the hacks, what are your priorities for cybersecurity overall in the upcoming Congress? So uh, certainly want to continue to support broader information sharing after uh, many years of, of fighting to get a bill through Congress to bring down the barriers that would allow for information sharing between uh, the federal government and the private sector and the private sector among e- each other. We finally passed the information sharing bill at the end of uh, 2015. That was a major step forward. Certainly not a silver bullet, but uh, we want to certainly uh, facilitate that information sharing now being implemented and actually happening. So it's probably happening a little too slow for my liking, but but I want to see us uh, see that that information sharing legislation realize its full potential. So beyond that, I, I still would like to see someone designated as in charge with the right policy and budgetary authority to better protect the .gov network. Uh, certainly, I give President Obama uh, great credit in the things that he has done to uh, strengthen our, our cyber defenses, uh, including uh, appointing the first ever cybersecurity coordinator and also designating the Department of Homeland Security and the Secretary of Homeland Security as the uh, principal entity or person that's in, in charge of protecting the .gov network. But still, no one really has policy or budgetary authority to actually direct and, and require vulnerabilities be closed. Uh, so that's still done by uh, OMB right now as the kind of the final arbiter. Uh, I mean, I'm pleased that, that the, the president has uh, designated a uh, federal CISO uh, so that uh, that'll take it a step further in, in making sure that we're closing cyber vulnerabilities. But there's still, I would still like to see somebody in charge. Beyond that, I'd like to see uh, personal data breach notification legislation pass so that if individuals' information is in any way uh, compromised, that individuals are notified as soon as possible that within uh, the shortest amount of time, uh, my bill that I have introduced would require a, a 30-day notification within that time frame. And uh, there, there'll be other bills working through the way through the Congress, and I'll be following those data breach notification bills very closely work to uh, with people who are trying to get a bill like that through or, or to amend uh, a bill that's making its way through Congress. The other thing I'd like to see is um, work on uh, workforce development. So we don't have nearly enough people going into the field of cybersecurity right now. Uh, it's a field with 0% unemployment. And we need more people in here, and, and not only for the federal government, but just overall. So not just increasing the, the, the slice of the pie of available talent in cyber, but increasing the size of the pie in, in, in general, from the, uh, both for the federal government and for the, the private sector. Uh, then the other couple of things I'd like to see is uh, metrics. 
uh, efforts basically to develop uh, metrics of what's working and what's not. Um, and and uh, we have the NIST standards, for example, but I'd like to know the degree to which the standards are being adopted uh, by industry and, and to the degree to which the NIST standards are, are actually working. And uh, so metrics are going to be important. And then the last thing I guess I would, I would identify is working harder to uh, secure the Internet of Things as uh, we become more and more networked, including things like medical devices uh, that can be updated uh, or uh, affected uh, remotely. We want to make sure that these, these things, especially things in the area of medical devices, are, are as secure as possible, the security is baked in ahead of time as opposed to having, to having to retrofit, which is in much of the way what we're trying to do with the Internet itself, is trying to go back and you know, build a, a security architecture on, on top of something that was designed to be free and open. And we can all see how challenging that has, has been. So being forward thinking about securing the Internet of Things is another area that I'll be focusing on. Internet-enabled uh, devices were one of the most popular gifts for Christmas this year, meaning most of us got the gift of hacking. So yeah. as you're talking about this yeah. uh, agenda, is Congress itself organized well around it? Cybersecurity is an issue that you know cuts across so many different committees, subcommittees. Do you think Congress itself is organized in the right way to handle this topic space? Yeah, probably not. I think you know. I think that we. It, need to really look at how we are organized around dealing with the issue of cybersecurity. Uh, certainly, I have uh, called for creating a select committee to investigate the Russian happening, hacking on this as it relates to uh, cyber and, and how they uh, influenced our uh, and undermined our, our elections uh, system. But going forward, I think that we need to look long and hard at creating perhaps a select committee on cybersecurity because there are some 80 different committees or subcommittees that have some jurisdiction over cybersecurity in the Congress. And that's just a nightmare to navigate through and for for entity for, for individuals or departments that are responsible for cybersecurity and having to kind of answer to and, and, and uh, be overseen by so many different committees or subcommittees makes it very difficult for these departments and agencies or individuals to do their job, it would be much more effective it, perhaps if we had a, a select committee that specifically focused on and it was the point entity for conducting oversight of cybersecurity. It would make sure, I believe, that, that things are not that don't fall through the cracks and that we coordinate expertise and, and have experts in, in centralized in, in one place so that when, say, a vulnerability is discovered, or an action needs to be taken to close a vulnerability or to build in resilience, that we know the committee that would handle it and uh, we can get it done more more effectively. And speaking of organizing government institutions, we're going to see a whole new cast of characters in the executive branch really soon. Um, in particular, we have some nominees that have to do with cybersecurity. Um, we have you know, retired General John Kelly, who was tapped to lead the Department of Homeland Security. We have Congressman Mike Pompeo, who was tapped for CIA director. Curious what you think about them taking over some of these pressing issues and whether you are um, confident or um, not as confident about cybersecurity improving in a Trump administration? Sure, I know uh, General Kelly. I've met with him uh, personally in the in the past. And uh, and I also know and have served with Mike Pompeo, particularly uh, my, my years on the Intelligence Committee. Our, our terms overlapped uh, for a period of time. And uh, I have a good rapport with with both of these uh, these individuals, and I expect that uh, that they will 
get through the confirmation process, uh, and and I look forward to working with them. Uh, but uh, obviously, they've got big jobs on their shoulders mm -hmm. and decide to, you know, uh, know how they will actually perform once they're there. But uh, at this point, um, I look forward to working with them if they, in fact, are confirmed. And in general, do you think that cybersecurity will improve in the next four years? Do you think that we'll come out of the next term more secure? Well, I'm going to do everything in my part to make sure that it that it uh, does make steady progress, that we do make more progress in, in protecting the country in cyberspace. Uh, as far as the new administration, I want them to take it uh, very seriously. And at the earliest opportunity, I'll be making the case that uh, that the, the, the new administration needs to do everything they can, have an all hands on deck approach to uh, protecting the nation in, in cyberspace. And uh, I hope that they will continue to put people in place and put uh, procedures in place that will both recognize our cyber vulnerabilities and take concrete steps to close off those vulnerabilities. Uh, I, in fact, uh, know General Flynn. Uh, he's someone, not only is he from Rhode Island, but I've worked with him uh, both when I was on the Intelligence Committee and he was uh, the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, we have spoken on numerous occasions together and worked together on, on cyber in particular. Uh, I actually brought him uh, and it was helpful in encouraging him and getting him invited to the University of Rhode Island uh, to be a keynote speaker for a cybersecurity symposium uh, that uh, was held at the University of Rhode Island. So I believe that uh, the General Flynn will, will take cybersecurity very seriously and hopefully uh, promote an agenda within the administration that takes further steps toward uh, closing on cyber vulnerabilities. That is my hope anyway. <laughs> So we have time for just one last question, and it's a question we ask all of our guests on the Cybersecurity Podcast, and that is, what is your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction? Favorite as in you think it's really accurate and just really the best description, or favorite as in you love to hate it and it's just so terrible that you can't look away? Well, the, the thing that gave me a visual to how dangerous a cyber attack could be uh, is the, uh, the Live Free or Die Hard movie uh, that Bruce Willis was in uh, several years ago. That came on the scene just around the time when I was getting into cyber. And talk about timely, uh, that it, it really was, was riveting because it showed a cyber attack that it was multifaceted and attacked things like critical infrastructure, information systems. Uh, uh, there were just a, a, a number of things that were the painted the, the worst case scenario, and that was really a, a visual eye-opener to me that uh, was uh, was really disturbing. Um, a book I read, too, is uh, Digital Fortress uh, by Dan Brown, and it talked about the power of uh, digital capabilities, if you will, and the incredible capabilities that, that exist. So there's another book that I, I enjoyed reading. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you. Great to be with you. Join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. And be sure to subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Pasco at csmpasco.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines with production assistance from Simone McPhail. Talk to you in a month. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit 
passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.